Good morning. Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I restored it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Well, um, last week I mentioned that um, just a few weeks ago, uh, there were certain terms that were not a part of our vocabulary, things like social distancing and flatten the curve. Today, these things are dominating our reality. Uh, this week, we actually added a couple of more terms, shelter in home and essential services. This week, I want to think especially about essential services. You know, we're in a time of extreme hardship and turmoil right now. And it's at a time like this that it'd be very easy for us to think, well, the thing we really need to be focusing on um, is uh, uh, things like just getting by, just surviving, you know, the essential services. So essential services, those would be things like physical needs, health needs, economic needs, or even emotional and psychological needs, the essential services. And yet, whenever someone came to Jesus with a basic need for an essential service, not only did Jesus meet that need, he always pointed them to a need beneath the need. So for instance, when some friends brought a paralytic man to Jesus in order for him to heal him, Jesus looked at the guy and said, your sins are forgiven. What? Or when Jesus fed 5,000 hungry people, and then the next day they came looking for him, Jesus said to him, you're coming to see me because you want more food. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which I will give you. Whenever Jesus was um, meeting people's needs, he always pointed them to a need beneath the need. Because for Jesus, it was never just about the basic needs like physical or economic or even emotional and psychological needs. There was always a need beneath the need. And, and Jesus was insistent that the greatest and deepest need of every human being is spiritual renewal. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about those other needs. In fact, 
you see that Jesus actually puts quite a bit of emphasis on those basic needs. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But Jesus, for Jesus, the most essential need, the most essential service was spiritual renewal. Now, here's what this means for us. If you're a Christian, then um, in addition to caring for the needs of ourselves and others, and we should be doing that, then um, also at the forefront of our mind should be spiritual renewal, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And what that means is something that's not just unpopular in our culture, it's seen as being deeply offensive and intolerant. The New Testament simply calls it bearing witness for Jesus, uh, but we call it conversion, and we say that is something that no one should ever do. No one should ever try to convert someone else. It's seen as being deeply offensive, deeply intolerant in our culture. It's a big problem in our world, and yet Jesus is calling us to do that. That means that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is something we should always be doing because Jesus was always doing it. In fact, it's the main thing he came to do. So if you're exploring faith and spirituality this morning, here's what this means for you. Yes, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Yes, Jesus healed people. Yes, Jesus was speaking out against intolerance and injustice and oppression. And yet the main thing Jesus came to do, and we see that in verse 10, he said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the main thing he came to do. Now, what does that mean? We're in a series on the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. So this week we're looking at what does it mean to make spiritual renewal uh, compelling, comprehensible, and available to people. Uh, our culture would call that evangelism or conversion. Jesus said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. This is an incredibly controversial topic. Let's see what Jesus himself has to show us about it by learning three things from this passage. We are going to see the mission of Jesus, the method of Jesus, and lastly, the motivation of Jesus, okay? The mission, the method, and the motivation of Jesus, right? First, the mission of Jesus. At the very beginning of this story, we're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus. Now, we're going to talk more about him in just a little bit, but right now, one of the first things we learn about him is that he was seeking to see Jesus. In other words, Zacchaeus is someone that is spiritually open. Uh, today, we might call him a seeker, which makes him like a lot of people today, perhaps even some of you this morning. You know, there are a lot of surveys that have come out recently indicating that Formal religious participation has been declining here in America. Less and less people are actually going to church. And yet, all of those surveys indicate that that doesn't mean those people don't believe in God. They do, most of them. In fact, there's been an explosion of all kinds of alternative spiritualities uh, over recent years. People are incredibly spiritually open today. So, for instance, in one of the surveys I was reading, uh, it asked people— uh, how they would respond if a friend of theirs who really values their faith was talking about their faith. And 45% said, hey, I wouldn't mind that at all. And that means that, that nearly half of the people out there who aren't currently connected to a church, they're very open to spiritual conversations. Another survey uh, interviewed people who are not currently attending church, and it asked them, how likely are you to attend church regularly sometime in the future? 33% said likely. That means that one out of every three people you meet right now that are currently not attending church, they expect 
that at some point in their future, they will be attending church. Interestingly, if you focus just on millennials, that number goes up to 39%. People are spiritually open right now. People, in fact, are spiritually hungry and probably even more so at a time like this because hardship and turmoil and trouble has a way of amplifying our spiritual hunger. People are very spiritually open right now. But here's one of the main things we need to grab hold of today. Yes, Zacchaeus was a seeker. But this story is about the real seeker. The real seeker in this story is Jesus Christ. Because the whole point of this story is not that Zacchaeus was on a mission to seek Jesus, but that Jesus was on a mission to seek Zacchaeus. And you see that once again in verse 10. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek people, but notice he also says that he came to save people. In fact, right before this, he said, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is very focused on salvation. Now, what does that mean? You know, in all of my years and really decades now of of studying and exploring different religions and worldviews, I have yet to come across a religion, a spirituality, a worldview, a philosophy, or any kind of approach to life that does not have some kind of doctrine of salvation. That means that um, whatever it is out there, whatever worldview, philosophy, religion, approach to life, everyone has a doctrine of salvation because two of the biggest questions in human experience are, number one, what's wrong with the world? And number two, what's the solution? Your answer to that second question is your doctrine of salvation, and everybody has one. Now, there are different concepts out there about what that actually is. It may be nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness or becoming one with the universe. Uh, Even for secular atheists, they would say, well, it's making the world a better place. Utopia. But every single one of them basically is saying, here's what you have to do. Okay, here are the prayers you have to pray. Here are the practices you have to practice. Here are the rituals you have to engage, or here are the policies that we have to adopt. The better you are at doing those things, the more successful you are at achieving salvation. It's all about what we must do. Here's what's so radically unique about Jesus. You notice that when Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, here's the question, how does salvation come? Well, here's how. The key is to looking at verse 5. That's the whole key to understanding this thing. Notice Jesus says, when he first meets Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, come down because I must stay at your house. You, You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, salvation has come because I have come. In other words, Jesus is saying that salvation is not practicing a practice. It's not a prayer you pray. It's not even a policy that you adopt. Salvation is a person that you meet. It's me, Jesus is saying, that that when I am present, salvation is present. Do you understand how radical this is? Now, here's what this means for us. We live in a culture that says you must never try to convert people. You must never try to get people to believe what you believe. That is seen as oppressive, intolerant, and narrow. No, we should never do that. Everyone should always be free to choose those kinds of things for themselves. If that's true, then you realize that Jesus is the most offensive, intolerant, and narrow person that ever lived. Because he didn't just say, you have to believe what I believe. Jesus said, you have to believe in me. Jesus was saying, I am the need beneath the need. I am the essential service. 
You see, Jesus does not cooperate with our culture or any culture that has ever existed. Now, let me try and make this as practical as I can for just a moment. First, if you're exploring faith and spirituality this morning, then I understand how jarring this can feel. When I was 30 years old and first exploring faith for myself, this was the thing that bothered me most about Christianity. How can Jesus be the only way? I hated that. Our culture says everyone should be free to choose a spiritual path that works for them. And and, and here's the thing. The only way you can say that is if you already have a particular view, a very exclusive view of the nature of spiritual reality. That means you've already been converted. So for instance, Philip Reef was one of the greatest sociologists of the 20th century. And one of the main things that he was able to accomplish in his whole life work was to show that every culture up until the present, throughout history, every culture uh, believed in what he called the sacred order. Now, what is the sacred order? According to Philip Reef, the sacred order is that divine, transcendent, supernatural foundation of all reality. Now, here's the thing. Different cultures and different religions would disagree on the nature of the sacred order, but all of them agreed on two things. First, the sacred order exists. And secondly, the sacred order is foundational to all of reality. Philip Reef was able to show that modern Western culture, and it wasn't just Philip Reef, by the way, but many others, have shown that modern Western culture is the first and only culture in the history of the world that is based on a rejection of the sacred order. It's based on a rejection of the sacred order. And now the motivations for this are, you know, we want to protect the world from religious violence. We want to protect individual freedom. And those are good and noble motivations. We should honor and support those. But think about this. When we um, say that we're rejecting the sacred order, that is not abandoning a belief about the sacred order. It's simply substituting a different set of beliefs about the sacred order. Namely, that the sacred order is not foundational, it's optional. Because how do we say it in our culture? Everyone should choose a spiritual path that works for them. If spirituality works for you, great. But if not, hey, that's okay too. It's not foundational. It's optional. Now let's think about this. Let's be clear about something together. How can you say spirituality is optional? Spiritual reality is optional unless you already have a very particular, very exclusive view of spiritual reality. The answer is you can't. Can we at least be honest about that? So if you're experiencing or exploring, I should say, faith and spirituality this morning, here's what this means for you. I would encourage you to at least consider the possibility that our culture is wrong, that spiritual reality is not whatever you want it to be, that it's not optional, that it is foundational, that it is the essential need beneath every other need. Um, Secondly, if you're specifically exploring faith in Christianity, then I would encourage you to understand that the primary question you need to be asking is, who is Jesus? Yes, there are all kinds of other questions that that you are being Uh, you should be asking. You need to ask those questions. You need to engage those questions. Things like, what about evil and suffering? Or doesn't science disprove the Bible? Or isn't the, the Bible's view of sexuality outmoded and repressive? Those are important questions. You should ask those questions. But the foundational question, the essential question is, who is Jesus? So if you're a Christian, here's what this means for you this morning. This means that sharing our faith with others is not 
as much a, a matter of indoctrinating people into a, a belief system as it is introducing people to a person. Now, understand, that does not mean that beliefs and practices are unimportant. Of course they are. Whatever you believe most deeply about ultimate reality is going to shape most powerfully the way that you live in this world. Beliefs and practices are tremendously important. But the essential thing about the gospel, the primary foundational thing um, at the beginning, is certainly, is this, that it's not so much indoctrinating people into a system of belief as it is introducing people to a person, Jesus. He is the need beneath the need. And that leads to our second point. We've just talked about the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. But secondly, we see the method of Jesus. Because here's the question. How do we share our faith with other people in a way that honors them and dignifies them? Because when you look at Jesus, he was always honoring and dignifying people. Well, um, there are five things that I'm going to share with you from this passage. Four of them are things that Jesus does. And one of them is something that Zacchaeus does in response to what Jesus does. And to help us remember these five things, I've arranged them into a little acronym for us, SHARE, S-H-A-R-E. And the first one, the S, just means seek people out. So let's go back to Zacchaeus. When we meet Zacchaeus in this story, it tells us that he was a chief tax collector and that he was rich. Now, tax collectors in the ancient world, these were Jewish people who were collaborating with the Roman Empire in order to collect taxes from their own people to give back to the Roman Empire. And there was always a hefty markup when they did it. So tax collectors were not only traitors with the Roman Empire against their own people, they were financial predators. Now, notice that Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector. It says he was a chief tax collector. That means that this guy was at the top of the food chain in this. He, this is someone who was deeply enmeshed in, a, in an unjust system of severe economic oppression. And he was making a killing at it because it says that he was rich. If you want to put this in modern terms, we could say that Zacchaeus is uh, he's the capitalist oppressor. Zacchaeus is like the corporate billionaire. Zacchaeus is the 1%. Our culture would say these people are the enemies of everything that is good. These are the people, we should, we should take them out and cut them out of society like a cancer. And certainly no one should ever befriend people like this. And yet when Jesus comes to Jericho and he's surrounded by all the people, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree and he says, that's the guy I need to connect with. Jesus was constantly on the lookout for people that nobody else was noticing. Friends, we also, if we follow Jesus, we should constantly be on the lookout for people that nobody else is noticing. And one of the, the most helpful ways to make this a habit and a reality in our lives is to make it something that we're regularly praying about. We should be asking God, God, who are you putting in my life today? Who have you put in my life this month? Who are you introducing to me? And who among them is spiritually open? Who, who among them is like Zacchaeus? They're up in a tree and they're looking for Jesus. We should be seeking these people out and understand something. If people don't want to have a spiritual conversation, please don't shove it down their throat. But this world is filled with people right now who are spiritually hungry. And, and they are looking for people that will have this kind of conversation with them. They're looking for people to dialogue with, to engage with about this. And that leads to the second thing. It's not just seeking people out. Secondly, H is for have a meal or a drink. So you notice when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he says, hurry and come down for, I must stay at your house today. Now that's basically Jesus saying, let's have a meal together. 
fact, having meals with people was one of the main things that Jesus did. It was also, by the way, one of the main things that got Jesus in trouble with the religious people of his day. Because in that culture, to have a meal with someone was a way of showing solidarity and support with that person. So people got very angry with Jesus because he was showing solidarity and support with people who were notorious sinners. But that's what he was doing. He was having a meal with somebody. So in the same way, one of the things that we can be doing with people is just once we've met them, once we've gotten introduced to them, is just invite them. You know, it's very similar for us today. When you have a meal with someone, or if you have a drink or a coffee with someone, or in this age of social distancing, even if you just go for a walk with someone and you've got your face masks on and you're six feet apart, but, but those things have a way of building trust and intimacy and dialogue and conversation with each other. And that leads to the thirst th uh, third thing, and, and that is ask genuine questions. Here's what this means. In other words, that means just be genuinely curious about people. When, um, when Zacchaeus and Jesus were having that meal together, what do you think that they were doing? They were talking. They were asking questions of each other and answering each other's questions. In fact, if you read through the Gospels with an eye for this, you'll be amazed to find out that Jesus asked hundreds of questions throughout his ministry on earth. Jesus was constantly asking people questions about what was really going on inside their life. So friends, in the same way, when you ask questions, when you listen to people, when you learn to listen and when you're listening in order to learn, there are very few things that are more honoring and more dignifying than that. Just to ask somebody, hey, tell me your story. What's your spiritual background? What are your beliefs about spirituality? Very few things are more honoring and dignifying than that. And understand something, you do not have to be a Bible expert in order to do this. All you have to do is be genuinely curious about somebody. And let me um, urge you one thing when you're doing this, and that is to please resist the urge, especially on the front end of a relationship with someone, please resist the urge to correct everything you perceive as being inaccurate about their beliefs or theology. If people are just getting to know Jesus, of course there are going to be things they're not going to agree with you about. Instead of correcting them, why not affirm what you can and then ask them another question? So for instance, if somebody says to you, you know, I've really been feeling an urge lately to pray to the universe. Instead of saying, wow, we really need to correct your theology of prayer, why not say, wow, that's great that you feel this desire to pray. Tell me more about that. What are you seeking for when you pray? Okay? So seeking people out, have a meal, ask genuine questions. Fourth, R means reveal your story. When you are building relationships with people, when you're building trust with people, that gives you an opportunity to share your own story with them. Now, I used the word reveal because it begins with R, and I needed an R word for this acronym, but it's the same thing. You're sharing your story. As you get to know people, you share your story with them. This is the thing that Zacchaeus does by the way. So you notice that when uh, they were eating that meal together and all the religious people were um, grumbling at Jesus because he had gone to eat at the house of a notorious sinner, it says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about this whole deal with what he's doing with his money. But for this week, I want to just point out this. When it says that Zacchaeus stood that's law court language. In the ancient world, you would stand up to give testimony to something. When, Zac when Zacchaeus stands up, what he's doing is 
Zacchaeus is sharing his story about how Jesus has transformed his life. Friends, again, you don't need to be a Bible expert to do this. You are already an expert in your story and about how Jesus has been at work in your life. And you can share that with people. And that leads to the last thing that we see here is extend an invitation. Extend an invitation. So when Jesus first meets Zacchaeus, again, in that verse, he says, hurry up and come down because I must stay at your house. It's an invitation to get to know Jesus better. When we're interacting with people, engaging with people, what we're really inviting them to is to get to know Jesus better. So for instance, maybe that means inviting them to church. You know, one of the surveys that I was reading was really interesting. It asked people who aren't going to church, how effective would invitations to church be through the following methods? 55% an invite from family would be very effective. 51% an invite from a friend would be effective, that they would respond to an invitation like that. Friends, this is easy to do. Um, but maybe it doesn't be, have to be a church service. You might invite them to your community group, uh, or you might even just invite them to read one of the Gospels with you. This is actually one of my favorite things to do. You know, most people have heard of Jesus, but very few people today have ever actually read through one of the historical accounts of Jesus's life. When you read through the Gospels with somebody, they're encountering Jesus. There is nothing more transformational than having an opportunity to encounter Jesus for yourself. So those are the five things. They're not the only five things that we could do or should do, but they were very prevalent in the life of Jesus, and they should be prevalent in our life as well. We seek people out. We have a meal. We ask genuine questions. We reveal our story, and we extend an invitation. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the mission of Jesus. We've talked about the method of Jesus. But lastly, we need to talk about the motivation of Jesus, because here's the real challenge. Many people today would still say that anytime you share your faith with somebody, that that is still inherently objectifying and dehumanizing. What do we say to that? Well, Tim Keller, the great pastor and uh, writer in New York City, he puts it perfectly. He says it like this, that, that we don't love people in order to share Jesus with them. Instead, we share Jesus with people in order to love them. In other words, if the only reason you're befriending people or loving people or caring for people is in order to share Jesus with them, then yes, that is objectifying. That is insulting. We shouldn't do that. But if you really love people, if your main motivation is to love people, care for them, do them good, then by definition, you would be sharing the things that you most deeply believe in are going to bring them good. So for instance, um, uh, if you believe that social distancing actually saves lives and prevents people from perishing, are you going to share that? <laughs> of course you are. You're going to share that all over social media. Are you going to maybe offend a few people? Perhaps. Is that going to stop you from sharing it? No way. Your, your sharing is a way of you loving people. You don't want to see people perishing. The same thing applies right here. Friends, our deepest motivation should be loving people because that was Jesus's deepest motivation. Our deepest motivation should be to love people because that was Jesus's deepest motivation. And, and for the last time, we see that once again in verse 10. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. His deepest motivation was loving people. When Jesus says that word lost there, it, it really means perishing. What does that mean? Well, let me put it like this. If there really is a God who created you, and if, as the Bible tells us, that, that God is not some nameless, impersonal deity, 
but a deeply personal God with a name who is the very source of life and love, then the deepest need, the most essential need of our lives is to be relationally connected to that God. When Jesus Christ calls us lost and perishing, understand that is a profound comment on the human experience, that, that, that we have made other needs more foundational than our need for God. And that in so doing, we've actually rejected not just some abstract concept of deity, we've actually rejected the, the personal God, the God who created us in order to share his life and his love with us. It's like being disconnected from life support. We're, we're perishing because we're disconnected from our deepest need. Jesus is saying, I am the need beneath the need. The reason the world and your life is perishing is because you're disconnected from me. I came in order to restore the connection because I love you. And the way Jesus did that was by perishing for us. You know, this week, as I was studying this passage and meditating on it, one of the things that just struck me over and over again is that this whole story takes place at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry. At this point in the story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be uh, arrested, tried, condemned, and ultimately uh, crucified on the cross. This time in Jesus's life is the most extreme crisis in his life. And it's just miles and hours away from him. It's imminent, and Jesus knows it. So when Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost, understand that the the reality of all that was going to mean for him would have just been weighing down upon him at that moment. Can you imagine the stress? Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine the inner turmoil that would have been going on in, in Jesus's life at that time? And yet here's Jesus with all of that going on in his life. And yet at that moment, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree and he says, there's somebody I need to connect with. It's almost as if the more extreme the stress, pressure, and turmoil in his life became, the more extreme his love became. And listen, in one sense, it's almost, not almost, it is impossible to say that God could ever be more loving, that his love could ever be diminished, because God is infinite love. He's always pouring his love out. But when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, when you look at the life of Jesus, it seems that the more extreme the stress, pressure, and turmoil in his life became, the more extreme his love became. That when you press him, when you crush him, when you cut him, just outpours the love out of Jesus's life. And the ultimate place you see that is on the cross. That when you cut Jesus open and he bleeds, he literally bleeds love for you. Friends, the more you experience that, do you know what that does to you? One of my favorite writers and cultural commentators is an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers. Uh, in one of his books, he was talking about how he had been watching a documentary uh, about the jungle. And in this documentary, in this jungle, there was a cave and they went to the cave. And in the cave, instead of running water, it was just corrosive acid caustic, totally unhospitable, extreme environment, totally unsupportive of any kind of life form. And so David Attenborough, he's the narrator, and you can almost imagine him narrating this show in his lovely British accent. Uh, he says, one would think that in such a poisonous environment, nothing could possibly survive. However, one would be wrong. That there are creatures who not only um, survive such an environment, they actually thrive in it. 
that, that they not just survive this extreme environment, they thrive in it. They, they thrive in the extreme heat, the extreme pressure, the extreme acid. They're called extremophiles because they not only tolerate extreme environments, they love extreme environments. It brings out the best in them. Don't you see? Jesus Christ was the ultimate extremophile. The more extreme the stress and the pressure and the turmoil in his life became, the more extreme his love became. Friends, if you're connected to Jesus, the ultimate extremophile, he's going to transform you into an extremophile as well. That the more extreme the stress, pressure, and turmoil in your life becomes, the more extreme your love for others would become. You know, we're living in, a, in an incredible moment of stress and pressure and turmoil. As I said, it's easy for us to think that the thing we should be focusing on right now is just the essential services, the basic needs like, like health and physical safety and economic well-being. Jesus is saying, I am the need beneath the need. And the more extreme the pressure in my life became, the more extreme my, loves become, my love becomes. When you get connected to Jesus, Jesus, the ultimate extremophile, transforms you into an extremophile so that you are able to share that life and that love with others. And you do it because you love them. We do not love people in order to share Jesus with them. We share Jesus with people in order to love them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story about Jesus Christ, the ultimate extremophile, the ultimate lover of souls. We pray this morning that you would press this message, the mission, the method, and the motivation deeper into our hearts, that the more we see Jesus, the more we would receive his love, and the more we receive his love, the more we would be transformed by that love into lovers of others, that we would lovingly and honorably and in, in, in a way that dignifies them share Jesus with other people, Father, not just because um, it uh, makes us feel good about ourselves, but because that's what loving people really looks like. And I pray for those this morning who are maybe exploring faith, maybe even exploring faith in Jesus. I pray that you would um, give understanding, give, uh, give light, give clarity, give discernment. I pray that you would help people as they're wrestling with, with deep and, and troublesome sometimes questions, Father, and that you would really be at work in people's lives to help them see the reality about who Jesus really is. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.